I need a second. That song messes me up every time. That's so good. Because I've been broken. I've been broken. And I've been made whole. And I just thank the Lord for it. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. I'll get better. Give me a second. I'll get better. Genesis chapter 12. Uh, Franklin Campus, we love you. Pastor Eric, we love you so much. It was a privilege to baptize with you uh, the other week at the creek. God bless you and, and the work there. Perry, Oklahoma, God bless you guys. I pray by the time you hear this message, you have a break from the heat and you have rain. I, I pray for rain for you guys. Genesis chapter 12, we're going to continue in a message series entitled Grace, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. That's how I learned as a kid to define grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. We're talking about God giving us exactly what we need but that we never, ever deserve. We're talking about being accepted before we are acceptable. We're talking about being loved before we are lovable. We're talking about grace. Now, honestly, church people talk about grace a lot, and you can't read the Bible, and you can't share the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus, without talking about grace. But let's be real honest. If you spent much time in very many churches, there's a lot of talk about grace, but not a lot of grace on display. Not a lot of grace shown, and God help us for that. When Jesus walked on earth, there was one group of people that he continued, continued to confront and continued to attack, and this is a group of people that ultimately crucified him, and they were the graceless religious people. The religious people who did not do grace, who did not respond to grace and did not share grace. These are the ones that could not, could not bear the true message of Jesus. We must not become people who talk about grace but show no grace. That's why we have to understand what grace is. That's why last week we started back at the very beginning in Genesis showing that God is gracious from the beginning. And it's why we pick up right here in Genesis chapter 12. Remember where we left off last week? Creation was, was a good creation, a perfect, perfect world that God created for whom? I'm sorry, I thought all of you were here last week. God created everything and he created it for whom? For us. God created the, the world for his glory but to be a home for us. And it was a perfect home for us. But we ruined it. By our sin, we ruined it. So creation has become this epic mess that we created. God created it good, we created it a mess, and yet God takes it upon himself to clean it up. This is the story of grace, and it brings us to Genesis chapter 12. Out of the blue, God steps in to clean it up. Genesis 12, verse 1. I'm going to read three verses from chapter 12, and then go back to chapter 15 with me, and you'll follow the story of Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. And, no, listen. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. Or what he says is, I, I will make your name great. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing to others. Literally what he says there is, be you a blessing. And that's what the Hebrew says, be you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. That's the promise. So flip back to chapter 15. 
When we go to chapter 15, understand we're going forward several years. Abraham believed, Abraham followed, and then years later, Abraham does a little bit of complaining. Listen to what he says, Genesis chapter 15. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, What good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own. The Hebrew says you will have a son out of your own body. You will have a son out of your own body who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. Verse 6, And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him righteous because of his, say the word, faith. Yeah. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Uh, Take your seats. What's the biggest mess you ever cleaned up? Biggest mess you ever cleaned up? Think about it. When you get in one of those situations where the mess is just gigantic, what do you do? Where do you start? I think the biggest mess I ever saw, among the biggest messes I ever saw, was when I was a kid. I was probably 12 or 13. My sister was probably, I don't know, 15, 16. And my mom asked my sister to, uh, to, to straighten the kitchen, clean the kitchen, and, and fill the dishwasher. Anybody ever done that? Anybody ever filled the dishwasher? <laughs> Y'all are scaring me. Anybody ever put liquid dishwashing detergent in the dishwasher? You, you ever done that? Yeah, well, here's the thing. Uh, my sister was in the house, and she was filling the dishwasher, and she did. She put the, the joy or whatever, uh, the, the dawn, in the dishwasher. Don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. The rest of us were out in the yard, my mom, my dad, and myself, and, and all of a sudden, company came up. Just somebody drove up out of the blue, a company, and that's fine. We live in the country. We're good with that. Uh, company came up, and then about that time, mom and dad said, come on in. Let's come inside. Let's visit. So we were all walking up the sidewalk toward the, toward the door, and all of a sudden, my sister just stuck her head out the door and said, Mama, why don't you take them around the yard and show them your flowers? <laughs> okay, that's weird. That's just weird. But we did it. We didn't do anything, you know, thinking things. She went back in and we walked around the yard a little bit and, and looked at the flowers. We didn't have that many flowers, but we walked around the yard. It's a small house. So we got around the house, got right back to the door. Go back to the door. Tracy just sticks her head out again and says, Hey, Daddy. Why don't you take them up to the barn and show them the puppies? We had dogs in the barn loft that had puppies, and so that was, again, weird. But we did it. We, we, we took the company up to the barn, and we looked at the puppies in the barn loft, and, and then we went back to the house, and this time Tracy didn't beat us to the door. When we opened the door, what do you think we saw? Just suds. Like an episode, remember the episode of the Brady Bunch when Bobby Brady does this? It was just like that. My sister was knee deep in suds. Our kitchen was filled with suds, just soap suds. And we had company now. I mean, the kitchen is filled with suds. What do you even do? What do you do when you're looking at something that big? Where do you even start? 
Well, you got to start somewhere. That's the point. You just got to start somewhere. So we all just waded in. It was really funny at first until you understand, what do you do with suds? What do you do? We got bags and boxes, and we literally had to take them outside and dump them. And what do you do with suds? I guess eventually they'll go away, but they're not going to go away quickly. We carried them out. Even the company had to help. We all waded in, carried suds out, dumped them out. And when it was over, my mama's kitchen had never been that clean. Never, ever been that clean. When you're facing a gigantic mess, where do you start? How do you begin to clean up an, an epic mess. Because you see, this is God's dilemma. The creation that he created was good and, and glorious, but we ruined it. It had become a mess, a, a mess of sin now. And it's our mess, and yet God takes it upon himself. By his grace, God takes it upon himself to clean it up. So where is he going to start? Take out your Bibles. Open your Bibles. People want a preacher that preaches from the Bible. I want a congregation that listens from the Bible, to be honest. Open your Bibles, Genesis. We left off last week at Genesis chapter, chapter 3. So go back there with me. Let, let's move forward a little bit real quickly. When last we left Adam and Eve, last week, where were they? They were outside the garden. God had placed a flashing sword there to block their access to what? You remember? To the tree of life. Why? What was the problem? What would happen if man and woman in their shame and in their sin could continue to partake from the tree of life? What's the problem with that from God's perspective? They would live in eternal separation, eternal shame. They would live forever apart from him. And that's not what God made them for. So God is going to take it on himself to bring them back. But God's going to have to deal with the sin problem. So let's watch what happens. Genesis chapter 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. What happens there? It's the very first Murder, and it happens between the two brothers. Cain kills Abel. It, it, it is a sign of how the sin of Adam and Eve so quickly spreads through and stains everything. Now their sons, the sons themselves, are, 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 are caught in sin. And so it's amazing. God pronounces a punishment upon Cain. I'm in chapter 4, around verse 13. Cain says, my punishment is too great. My punishment is too great. Everywhere I go now in the world, people are going to want to kill me. And what does God do? It's a sign of grace. Verse 15, God puts a mark on Cain. Now, Cain is the very first murderer. You would have put a mark on him, but it probably would have been in the electric chair, you understand, or some sort of lethal injection. But God deals with the very first murderer with grace. He puts a mark on him, and it is a mark of protection. It's a sign of grace. Notice that. On into chapter 4, into chapter 5, we get the descendants, the long genealogy from Adam and Eve and their children. And it takes us all the way up to chapter 6 when we realize that very quickly, all of the people of the world, all of the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of Adam and Eve, they have one thing on their minds now. And what is that one thing? Wickedness. All they can think about is wickedness. They're consumed with wickedness. And it brings God to the point where he has to confront the wickedness of the world. And this helps you understand God's dilemma because you see the sin that God hates, the sin that destroys, the sin that brings shame and separation, that sin that God hates is so very intertwined with the people God loves. 
Do you understand? The sin God hates is completely intertwined with the people God loves. And therefore, his dilemma is how do you destroy the sin and not destroy the people? So in the story of Noah, God is faced with this incredibly, incredibly wicked human race. But don't miss Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, where it says an amazing thing. Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found what? Grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so in that great and mighty flood, you know the story, God saves Noah and his family. It is grace. It is a beautiful sign of grace. After the flood, God confirms a covenant with Noah with the rainbow. Once more, God promising, promising not to destroy, but always to save, always to love and seek the friendship of the world. An amazing thing happens from Noah and his children and his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. What do they do? They once more become completely united in wickedness. As a human race, we're very, very diverse, but we share one thing in common. We're all sinners. And you leave us to ourselves, we will always seek out the expression of our sin. And then it brings you to the Tower of Babel where the entire human race once more is completely solid in their sin and united. And they decide, if you notice, they're going to build a tower that reaches where? But a tower that reaches to heaven. In other words, we're going to try to take the place of God and we're going to make a great name for ourselves. Keep that phrase in your mind. We're going to make a great name for ourselves. Once more, God comes down. He has to stop them. He destroys the tower and he scatters the people and he confuses their language. And then God does an amazing thing. Because you see, at the end of the Tower of Babel, There's not a sign of grace. In all the other stories, there's been some sign of grace in the middle of the wickedness, in the middle of of God's wrath. There was always that sign of grace. But Babel has no point of grace until you see what God does next. You see, God's going to clean up this mess. He's got to start somewhere. So where's he going to start? With one man. God's going to start with one man. God wades into the epic mess of creation. Begins with one man. You ever heard him talk about a man who needs no introduction? Former pastor Wallace Morris. A lot of you didn't know Brother brother Wallace. You really missed a blessing. Bromo was just an awesome man. Uh, Once Wallace Morris was asked to introduce Charles Stanley, who was uh, just a a great, great Baptist man, Baptist leader. Everybody knows Charles Stanley. Brother Morris was honored to introduce him when he was in town, when Charles Stanley was in town. I don't know if any of you were there. Brother Morris started his introduction by saying, I'm going to introduce to you a man who needs no introduction. And then Brother Morris talked for 45 minutes. 45 minutes introducing a man who needs no introduction. Well, understand, Abraham in Scripture is a man who needs no introduction. Just out of nowhere, chapter 12 just just appears, and God begins to reach out and initiate a a relationship with with Abram. Abraham is a man who gets no introduction. I guess the assumption is, if you're reading the Bible, you know who this is. Abraham becomes one of the most important men in all of Scripture. And it has to do with what we're reading this morning. It has to do with what God does in Abraham's life right here. God reaches down and God starts with one man. And this is the story of grace. 
And honestly, this is the kind of thing that confuses people because you look down at the whole human race and see how God looks down and chooses one man and that can sort of give you the impression that, that in this great story of grace, God has favorites. God must somehow have favorites so that in all of creation, he just likes Abraham more. He loves Abraham best, and so he chooses him. You'll hear people talk these days. They'll even talk about doctrines of grace. But when they talk about doctrines of grace, they end up with this God who chooses and, and then unchooses different portions of the human race. And I just wonder where the grace is in that. This is not a game where God chooses favorites. You understand, this isn't in any way really about Abraham at all being more loved or, or chosen because he's special. Do you understand? God does choose Abraham. God looks across the entire earth, the entire human race, and he begins his great cleanup of grace with one man. So I guess we have to ask, what is it? What is it about Abraham? Why does God choose him? Why this one man? Of all the men, why Abraham? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. I know that God has one purpose, one great purpose, and his purpose is larger than any single one of us. God's great purpose is to bring us all home. God's big purpose is to reconcile every human being back to himself. God's great purpose is to redeem creation and to save the world. That's God's great big purpose, and it goes beyond every single one of us. If we have any purpose before God, it's a little purpose inside that big purpose. So the only thing I can say about Abraham is that it suits God's gigantic purpose to choose him. God is sovereign. And it suits his grand purpose to work with Abraham. It pleases God. It suits God. It fulfills his purpose. But I think it's more than that. Turn in your Bibles to a really interesting verse. Really turn, really mark this. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. I want you to understand something of what God sees when he looks at the world. 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. This is a good verse. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth. Okay, think about that. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro, search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. When God looks at the world, when God looks at all of us as people, what does God look upon? Your heart. God sees the inside. God looks at hearts. You and I can't do this. Even if we try, we can't do this. You cannot see the inside of me. You do not know my true motives. You think you do sometimes, but you don't. I can't read your mind. Sometimes I think I know what you're thinking, but I can't. I can't know your heart. I don't know how you've been hurt. I don't know who you have hurt. 
I don't know what makes you joyful. I don't know what breaks your heart. I don't know your heart. I can't see your heart. But God does. God sees every heart perfectly. God sees with perfect vision. God looks upon hearts. It's the clearest message of Scripture. This is why God is qualified to judge us. This is why God alone can save us, because God alone has access to your heart. And God searches the whole earth, the Scripture says. He searches the earth looking for a particular kind of heart. What kind of heart is he looking for? Absolutely. God searches the whole earth in order to strengthen the heart that is fully committed to him. God's looking for hearts. God's looking for a particular kind of heart. And God knows it when he sees it. He's looking for a heart that will be fully committed to him. And I would say that when God looks down on the earth and when God chooses Abraham, when God starts all that God is going to do by grace with Abraham, I think it's got something to do with this man's heart. This man's heart, perhaps of all of the hearts of all of the men alive in his day, if there's only one man, one heart on the planet that's going to be fully committed to God, it's Abraham's heart. God searches the earth looking at hearts, and God can see Abraham's heart, and when he looks into Abraham's heart, he says, that's a man I can use. That's a man I can use. When God searches the earth today, when God, his eyes roam to and fro through the earth today, if there's going to be one heart that's going to be fully committed to him today, want that to be my heart. Do you understand? Is that not your prayer too? If there's going to be one girl, one girl in all of the world that, that God could use to do something amazing for the world, why wouldn't you want it to be you? If it's going to be one guy, maybe one student in all of South Warren High School or Franklin Simpson High School, if there's going to be one person that God could choose to use, why wouldn't you want that to be you? It's going to be one heart that's going to beat just for God. Why not your heart? Do you understand what I'm saying? God sees hearts, and he sees your heart. You can fool everybody else. You can put on a face for everybody else. But God's not looking on your face. He's looking on your heart. He sees your heart. There's going to be one heart in all of creation that's going to beat purely for God. Why not let that be your heart? I want that to be my heart. If there's one church in all creation that God could use in this day, in this age, if there's going to be one congregation that God could use to plant other congregations, one little church in one little corner of Podunk, Kentucky, that God could use to reach the whole world, I would want that to be our church. Why would we not want to be that church? If there's going to be one family, one family in all creation that God would use to do amazing things, why not your family? Why is this not your prayer? Why would this not be the very desire of your heart? If there's going to be one heart in all creation that God can use, that God can bless, God, let it be my heart. I want to be that man. Don't you want to be that heart? The eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the earth. In order to be strength for the heart that's fully committed to him. 
can't say why God starts with Abraham, but he does. It, it suits his purpose, his larger purpose to save the world. And I have a feeling that there's something about Abraham's heart. I can't see Abraham's heart, but, but I can read this story and I can see what this man does. What he does is amazing. Go back to chapter 12 with me. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your native country, leave your relatives, leave your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Where have you heard that before? I said it once, one time earlier, and I asked you to remember. This is the pop quiz. Where did you hear that phrase? Yeah, exactly, the Tower of Babel. What were they going to do for themselves? They were going to make a great name for themselves. Notice that. But here God is simply promising to Abraham what the people had wanted to do for themselves. I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing. You will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Do you understand the absolute radical grace of this? Because God just wades into creation. He wades into all of the stink of sin. He wades into this epic mess that we have made of the world. He wades in. He starts with one man. And how does he start? With just these promises. This one-sided promise. God just steps in and says, Abraham, let me tell you what I want to do for you. I want to make your name great. I want to bless you. And I want to make you a blessing to the whole world. I want to bless everybody who blesses you, and I will curse all of those who treat you with contempt. I am going to bless you. Where in the world does that come from? This incredible offer, this incredible uh, ability to be chosen, where does that come from? What has Abraham done to deserve that, or for that matter, even dream of it or ask for it? Where does that come from? Well, it's grace. Do you understand? It's It's grace. Abraham has done nothing to deserve this, nothing at all to ask for this. God just steps out, wades in, and offers a promise. God gives a one-sided promise to a 75-year-old man. Now, no offense to all you 75-year-old men in the house. We understand it's a 75-year-old man. And what is the very essence of this promise? You're going to have a whole lot of children. Now, I'm not 75, I'm 47, but I can tell you at this point in my life, I don't want a whole lot of children. I don't want them. I got one. I love him with all my heart. He's enough. I love your kids, but you can keep them. He's 75. He and his wife have never, ever been able to have children. There was probably a time back in the day when Sarah used to pray for children there's probably a time when she was crocheting booties and they probably set aside a room in the back of the tent for a nursery. There was probably a time when they would dream of that. But they're 75 now. They finished dreaming about that. God's talking to Abraham and Sarah's out in the back somewhere having a hot flash. They're done with this dream. Do you understand? They're finished with this. They're 75. God says, up at the sky. Try to count the stars, Abraham. You can't do it. That's how many descendants you'll have. Abraham does an amazing thing. 
He believes it. He believes it. At 75, with Sarah in the middle of a hot flash, he believes it. What's that look like? This believing is very, very important. What's it look like? Oftentimes in Christian circles, there's an ongoing debate between faith and works. And we know that Abraham is justified because of his faith, because he believes. But, But don't miss something. What does that look like? What does belief look like? Now, most of us, you imagine you can't see belief. But belief is something inside. So if you were watching Abraham at this moment, you wouldn't see anything. You would just know that somewhere in his mind or somewhere in his heart, he, he, he turns everything toward God. It's, it's a mental or a spiritual or very psychological thing, belief. It's something that happens internally. That's how we think. That's how we think. That, that faith is something very private and internal and invisible. But I want you to understand something about Abraham's belief. It's the verse I didn't read. It's chapter 12, verse 4. Here's what happens next. God says, I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And all the families on earth will be blessed through you. And then verse 4, so Abraham left. You understand? He believes with his feet. He believes with his feet. To believe God isn't just something inside your head or something inside your heart. You believe God with your feet. You believe God with your mouth. You believe God with your hands. You believe God with what you do with your life after God speaks. You understand faith is not just something invisible inside, something untouchable, something unmeasurable. Abraham believes with his feet. And if you're believing God at all, understand it it is going to be something that affects the way you live. You cannot have a relationship with this God. You cannot be overwhelmed by the grace of this God and somehow remain unchanged. Your life is not going to just continue on the same path and there be no difference. When God's grace comes and intersects with your life, it's going to blow you off the path you were on. Do you understand? You're going to change the road that you're walking. If you're going to believe God, you're going to believe him with your feet. And you will no longer be walking the same path. You will no longer be taking your life in the same direction. Believing for Abraham is a radical kind of obedience, but it's faith. It's the work of faith. It's what faith looks like in real life. He believes with his feet. Chapter 15, back over. See one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. Chapter 15, verse 6. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord... Credited it to him, sometimes the scripture says. The Lord counted him as righteous. That's one of the most important verses in all of scripture. Because this is where you see God's plan of salvation begin. With one man and his faith. And what God does in response to the faith of this man. When God sees his faith, it says, God declares him righteous. Now, what's righteous? Again, that's a church word that often we use a lot and don't understand very well. Sometimes it's not even a positive word. We'll say that somebody's self-righteous, and what do we mean by that? They think they're better than they are or better than everybody else. But in Scripture, righteous is an important word. In some ways, it's a legal term. 
It's a legal term. It means to be justified. It means to be declared innocent. It's a moral term. It has to do with behavior. It has to do with with guilt. It has to do with things being wrong and then being made right. And so when God sees the belief, the faith of Abraham, God does an amazing thing. He just goes ahead and moves Abraham over in the category of being right with him. Abraham was afflicted by the same sin that afflicted all of the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And he was as guilty as everybody. But when God sees his faith, when Abraham will simply believe God, God just simply right there declares him innocent, declares him forgiven. He declares that Abraham from this point on is in a right relationship with him. Do you understand? God just simply declares the relationship made right. And that's a gift of grace. Abraham hasn't done anything to deserve that. And if you keep reading this story, he's going to continue to sin. God is still working with a sinner, people. But it's a sinner who has faith. It's a sinner who will believe. It's a sinner who will let God do his work in his life. And if you will open your heart to God and let him do his work, I'm telling you, God will work through you. God will save you. God will declare you righteous. It's grace. Do you understand? It's grace. It's all grace. And all you've got to do is is believe. God sees this one man and starts talking to him. He doesn't say a word about his sin. Doesn't say a word about him being 75 and probably infertile. Doesn't say a word about E.D., God just looks down and sees one man and starts overwhelming him with promises. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will give you children like you can't even count or imagine. God just gives promises. Abraham believes them. That's how he becomes righteous. So what's God doing? In the world, he's trying to clean up an epic mess. You understand that? An epic mess of sin. The sin is intertwined. The sin that God hates is intertwined with the people that God loves. How in the world can God destroy the sin and yet somehow save the people? He does it in an amazing way. He just starts with one man, one man that was himself a sinner, one man that was just as broken as everybody else, one man who was sustained with sin as everybody else. But God does an amazing thing with a man who will believe. One more verse, back to James chapter 2, verse 23. Please turn, don't miss this. James 2, 23. This is what God wants in the world, you understand? This is what God is doing in the world. This is his master story and plan of grace. This is what God is doing. James chapter 2, verse 23. And so it happens, this is the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. And Abraham was called the, say the word, friend. (laughs) Abraham was called the friend of God. Epic mess of creation. An epic mess of sin. A world of sinners that God wants to save. 
How's he going to do that? The sinners don't deserve salvation. The sinners, for the most part, can't even ask for it, don't even dream of it. What's God going to do with a world full of sinners? By his grace, he's going to save them. Do you understand that? He's going to save them. And every sinner that will open their heart to him, everyone who will believe his promise will be saved. Do you understand that? Whosoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you understand what God is doing by his grace with a world full of sinners? He takes them all one heart at a time, one person at a time, one sinner at a time. And calls them his friend. God turns sinners into friends. A right relationship with him. And he does this only by his grace. Do you understand? God calls you his friend today. But only by his grace. Pray with me. Oh God, who are we that we could be called your friends? God, we are sinners. We do not love you as you love us. We do not love our neighbors as we love ourselves, Lord. We are sinners to the very tips of our toes, to the very top of our head, Lord. We are sinners. We do not deserve your friendship. We do not deserve your forgiveness. We do not deserve your promise of salvation. We deserve none of this. It is amazing that you give us exactly that one thing that we do not deserve, that that one thing that we can never earn or get for ourselves, Lord, that one thing, Lord, that we can never repair, that broken relationship with you, Lord, that we can't from our side do anything to fix, Lord. You took it on yourself to repair that relationship. And, Lord, you have called us now your friends. Help us, Lord, to believe. Help us, Lord, to listen for your voice and to listen to your promise and then to Believe with our hearts and with our hands and with our feet, Lord. Help us to believe with our whole being to believe. God, I pray for everyone in the sound of my voice. Lord, there are people listening to this sermon. There are people attending this church today. People at the Franklin campus who, though they are in church, they do not have a relationship with you, Lord God. They cannot truly say that they walk as a friend with a friend with you. Lord Jesus, I pray by your grace that you would overwhelm their hearts today with mercy and overwhelm their hearts today, Lord, with an offer of salvation, an offer of forgiveness, an offer of blessing for all of us who deserve no blessing. God, help us today to understand the beauty of grace. And while we'll never fully understand it, help us to believe it and accept it. And to begin to live as your friends. Oh, Lord God, all of us who are far away from you today, Lord, I pray that we will come near to you by your grace. I pray that we will hear the message of Christ and believe and be saved by faith through grace. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.